Chapter Thirty One, Part Two of House, Garden, and Field by L. C. Meol. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Hedge and Ditch, a summer term's work for a school form. Continued. The ditch. The ditch beneath the hedge is partly dry and partly wet. Where it receives the oozing from a bog in the next field, it always has standing water in it, and the little pool thus formed is a great resource to us, for there are no ponds nor any other bit of standing water near at hand. The ditch yields us three flowering plants, duckweed, float grass, and starwort, tadpoles, pond snails, and a great number of microscopic organisms. Duckweed I have already written about, in Round the Year on page 192. Of starwort I have nothing to tell as yet, some account of the leaves of float grass will be found on page 267 in this book. Mollusks of the Ditch Two species of mollusks abound in the ditch. One of these, Cyclus cornea, is a bivalve. The other is a water snail with a spiral shell, Limnia peregra. What are the most convenient names for these two mollusks? I cannot bring myself to call Cyclus a freshwater cockle, as some do, because that is a name which must be unlearned by everybody who comes to know what a cockle really is. Perhaps we may tolerate the not very difficult Greek name Cyclus. Pond snail will do for the various kinds of limnia, if we are careful to use it for no others. Peregra means traveling, and the name of traveling pond snail will distinguish the species found in our ditch from all others. Cyclus, which is also called spherium, what a plague to natural history are the writers who give two names to the same thing, has a double shell, thin and semi-transparent, almost circular in side view, but strongly biconvex when seen edgewise. The general structure of the animal within the shell is similar to that of the pond mussel, anodon, so well known in biological laboratories, but differences will be discovered by dissection. In Cyclus, there is only one pair of gills, Every individual is both male and female, and there are two siphons which can be protruded from the shell, one serving for the entrance and the other for the escape of a stream of water. When a cyclus is kept for a few hours in a dish of muddy water, the siphons are sometimes protruded. Any naturalist who has a microscope and knows his anodon pretty well will find cyclus an interesting object of study. The animal is so transparent that most of its structure can be made out by removing the shell and turning the soft parts over with a needle. Indeed, nearly everything can be seen in a young cyclus removed from the gill of its parent and studied alive and uninjured with a low power. I have seen the heart beating and the otoliths vibrating in such a specimen. As an anodon, the young are hatched in the gill during the winter months. At this season, the cyclus is often torpid and buried in the mud. Here is a question for students who love biological problems. It is not exactly an easy one, but soluble by anybody who has a fair knowledge of animals and some thinking power. Most bivalve mollusks are marine and produce multitudes of eggs. Cyclus, which is a freshwater bivalve, produces very few. Anodon, which also inhabits fresh waters, produces very many. How can these facts be explained? See Hint 12. In summer, a cyclus will protrude its broad fleshy foot and move about freely, occasionally rising to the surface of the water and creeping on the surface film as on a ceiling. A young cyclus can climb much better than a full-sized one, and it is chiefly young ones which rise to the surface, for greater size means diminished power of using capillary forces. A cyclus, especially when young, will also attach slime threads to the bottom of a vessel or to floating plants, 
and use these as a means of ascending and descending. Such threads, being perfectly transparent, are not easily seen. Occasionally, they become visible by their reflecting a beam of sunlight or by air bubbles clinging to them, especially when the water has recently been changed or by particles of fine mud becoming attached and giving them a brownish tint. It is only close observers who will see the slime threads at all, and even they may have to wait long. Sometimes a young cyclist has been seen to hang from a floating plant and to rotate for hours by means of the stream of water issuing from one of its siphons. The traveling pond snail is the commonest of water snails. Like a garden snail or a slug, it breathes air by a kind of lung, which has, however, no communication with the mouth. This is a strange feature in an animal which is usually immersed in water and points to descent from land snails, a derivation which is on all accounts highly probable. Traveling pond snails are able to leave the water at pleasure and are not uncommonly found on a bank or in wet grass or on the roots of a tree, but they love damp places and soon perish in dry air. They often come to the surface of the water to breathe, and at such times a pore may be seen to open on the right side of the body, close to the thin lip of the shell. This pore, which is placed as in a slug or a garden snail, leads into the lung. Fresh-hatched pond snails have the lung filled with water, and the same thing is said to be true of the pond snails which dwell in the depths of great lakes, though they replace the water by air whenever they have an opportunity of doing so. The freshwater limpets, ancillus, which may be considered as a kind of pond snail, regularly fill their lungs with water and keep them filled. It is easy to study the form of a pond snail, which is kept in an aquarium. In many respects, it is like the garden snail, but it has its points of difference. The tentacles are of a different shape, being flattened at the base, and the eyes, instead of being borne on the tips of the tentacles, are placed at their bases on the inner side. The tentacles of a pond snail cannot be telescoped like those of a garden snail. The broad, creeping foot, the mantle applied to the shell, and the breathing pore are much the same in both animals. In these, as in all snails, the tip of the spiral shell is turned away from the head, and the mouth of the shell opens on the right side. Pond snails and some other aquatic mollusks are fond of creeping on the surface film of water. Semper and some other naturalists have tried to correct this statement. They maintain that the snail creeps on the air. A simple experiment will decide who is right. When a pond snail is found traveling foot uppermost at the top of a tank, dust the water with lycopodium or some other light powder. You will see that as the snail travels along, it does not part the thin layer of powder, but glides beneath it. Hold a wet finger over it and let a big drop fall upon the foot. This looses the hold upon the surface film and causes the animal to capsize. As it is lighter than water, in consequence of its air-filled lung, the snail continues to float. Only when seriously alarmed does it expel a bubble of air from its lung and sink to the bottom. To regain its position at the surface, when it has sunk to the bottom, the snail must climb up the side again, which might be a long and toilsome business in a large pond. Threads of slime are occasionally used by pond snails to facilitate ascent or descent, and I believe that if the threads were easily visible, we should find that they are often employed to get over a difficulty. It appears from the testimony of several observers that a pond snail, when rising from the bottom by virtue of its buoyancy, may check its ascent by a thread attached below, that when sinking it may remain connected with the surface film by a thread, and that it may go up and down with the help of old threads extending from the top of the water to the bottom. This is not all. 
Threads are certainly seen at times to stretch from one leaf or twig to another, and under favorable circumstances, tracks of slime several feet long and half an inch wide have been seen to cross the surface of standing water. Anyone who finds a water snail suspended between the surface and the bottom should investigate the circumstances with all possible care, as more facts are still desired. Pond snails of several species may be kept in an aquarium. Even small glass globes, holding a pint of water or less, will do perfectly well if adequate food and air are supplied. Fill the globe with water a fortnight in advance and set it in a sunny window. The sides will soon be coated with a green film of minute green water weeds, and a pond snail requires no more. Watch the operation of feeding. The upper lip is raised and the sides of the mouth drawn back. A brown mass protrudes for an instant and then the mouth closes. This action is repeated many times in a minute, and each time a morsel of the green weed is licked off and swallowed. Those who possess the requisite skill in dissection can open the mouth and examine the parts. There is a transverse cutting blade, the mandible, which projects from the upper lip and can be made to descend like a guillotine. There is also a lingual ribbon, a long brownish flexible membrane set with countless pointed backward directed teeth which rasp the food. It is this which protrudes from the mouth at the moment of opening. The snail, as it travels over the glass, clears a narrow track, and by examining the track with a lens, we can see exactly how much of the green stuff was removed at each bite. In all the stony brooks of the district, the freshwater limpet, another objectionable name, naturalists call it Ancelus, abounds. Let us collect a few and put them in a separate globe. The biting track of an Ancelus is quite different from that of a pond snail. It zigzags as if the creature bent its head by turns as far to the right and as far to the left as it would do without moving its whole body and in each of the sidelong clearings you can distinguish the separate bites. Though pond snails subsist mainly on vegetable food, they enjoy an occasional taste of flesh, and may now and then be seen devouring a dead minnow or some other carcass which fortune has put within their reach. Pond snails do not hibernate, but move about and feed all through the winter. In summer droughts, when the water dries up, they bury themselves in the mud. The sexes are united, and every pond snail is both male and female. During the summer months, they lay their eggs, many together, in gelatinous strips, which are made fast to stones or to the stems and leaves of aquatic plants. In an aquarium, the eggs are often glued to the glass. Owing to their transparency, these egg masses are very convenient for microscopic study. Like the egg ropes of Chironomus or a caddisfly, they can be examined alive time after time. Within each egg membrane, there can be seen a globular mass of yolk. After a little while, transparent cells appear on one side, the first cells of the future body. When the little snail begins to take a definite shape, it is found to be encircled by a ciliated girdle, which lies in front of the mouth and sets up a steady rotation of the embryo within the egg membrane. In a later stage of development, the simple girdle becomes drawn out into paired lobes, which project on either side. All this is just the same in any larval sea snail, except that the ciliated girdle there becomes an effective organ of locomotion, enabling the footless and finless larva to propel itself through the sea, and with the help of currents, to transport itself far from the place of its birth. In the pond snail, the girdle soon loses its cilia and ceases to resemble an organ of aquatic locomotion. Lancaster has shown that part of it is represented in the adult by the tentacles. 
The ciliated girdle of the embryo pond snail is therefore the last vestige of a migratory larval stage which is still effective in the sea snails. Remote progenitors of the pond snails, it would seem, inhabited the sea. When they betook themselves to inland waters, so restricted that a crawling snail could traverse them in almost any direction, the original purpose of the ciliated girdle ceased to exist. What had been a free larval stage came to be included in the period of embryonic development. The cilia, if useful at all under the new conditions, are useful in a totally different way. It may be that they still serve to prevent adhesion to the embryonic membranes, a danger incident to all animals which undergo a protracted development within an egg. One part of the disused organ has undergone a strange transformation, being converted into a pair of tentacles. The gelatinous egg chain of a pond snail, familiar to every naturalist and so easily examined that it may be put into the hands of a beginner as a first piece of independent study, is at the same time worthy to occupy the thoughts of the most advanced speculator. It leads us far from the conditions of life of the existing pond snails, forcing us to consider the larval migrations of their remote ancestors, their subsequent adaptation to terrestrial, and finally to fluviatile existence, and the persistence through long ages of faint but unmistakable vestiges of ancient history. The Mud Flats in August it is now August, and the summer heats have dried up the ditch until only one deep pool and one thin runnel of water are left. The black ooze stiffens and cracks. Some of the mudflats, which have been long exposed to the air, are covered with a mat of green threads, and in places this mat has been lifted by the growing bulrushes, so that it looks like a torn green veil, partly bleached by the sun. This is the meteoric paper of 18th century naturalists, with whom a meteor had come to mean rain, wind, snow, or indeed any weather phenomenon. The microscope tells us the real nature of meteoric paper. Meteoric paper consists of the matted filaments of green algae, Edegonium or Cladophora, entangling multitudes of diatoms. It was first investigated by Ehrenberg and Cohn, but had been remarked long before their day, for instance in 1736, when it covered acres of low-lying ground near Breslau. What are these little green stalks, three-quarters of an inch high, each surmounted by a yellow head, which stand up from one of the mudflats? Dig up a good-sized patch, take it home, and keep it moist for a few weeks to see what it will grow to. Every yellow head is a seed of the toad rush, Juncus buffonius, and the green stalk on which it is mounted is the cotyledon. Just where the radical and the cotyledon meet, a circle of fine rootlets is given off. On the same flat can be seen many plants of limicelle, a little creeping herb with slender shoots, and here and there a tuft of narrow green leaves an inch or two long. The pinkish corolla is so small that we cannot study it without a lens. We must observe these things now, for the first thunder rain will fill our ditch, and it may be long before we see anything more of either the germinating toad rush or the limicelle. Many of the pond snails lie out of the water, and they are probably ill at ease, for none of them are feeding. The water flea, Daphnia. Let us search the pool. I lower a dipper into the water and bring up a cupful. As soon as the mud has settled, I see a number of whitish specks which swim with short jerks or run on the bottom. These are the so-called water fleas. One is tempted to find fault with the name, for the water flea has very little in common with the domestic flea, but the name is Swammerdam's, and will not easily be forgotten while Swammerdam continues to be read. 
Every zoological textbook gives a description of the water flea, Daphnia, and excellent figures abound, so that our account of its structure may be very brief. It resembles a very small shrimp covered by a sort of cope, the carapace, which is made fast to the back of the head and doubled in two, but not hinged. The carapace is flattened from side to side, and so big that head, body, and limbs can be almost completely retracted within it. A pair of large branched antennae are used as sweeps, and it is these which jerk the body through the water. The other limbs are small and hardly project from the narrow slip between the edges of the carapace. The forked tail is turned forwards beneath the body and is constantly engaged in a sweeping movement, bailing the water out of the enclosed space. Both carapace and body are transparent, allowing us to see the beating of the heart and the streaming of the blood in a live specimen laid on the stage of the microscope. The paired eyes, usually found in crustaceans, coalesce in the water flea and form one big compound eye, which is always trembling. Water fleas show no distinct color, except where many are collected in a small space when they are said to give a reddish tint to the water, which is particularly evident in spring. Swammerdam speaks of water being changed to blood, according to popular belief, when examination showed that the color was due to crowds of daphnias. This appearance I have never seen myself. They often swim near the surface when the light is weak, but sink when the sun shines upon the pool. The water flea, being very abundant and easily kept in captivity, is an excellent study for the young naturalist, who, let us suppose, has just come into possession of a microscope. I would recommend such an one, if he really means to improve, to put aside all the favorite curiosities, and not to distract his mind by frequent change of object. Let him observe steadily and patiently some one living thing, until he has mastered his instrument and learned how to work. A fair set of drawings of Daphnia, made without the help of books, would give proof of the kind of ability which really advances natural history. Few will take the advice, and we must leave the majority to their cabinets of bought slides. When the general structure of the water flea has been made out, I would suggest that its modes of egg production should be particularly studied, as it is chiefly these which have made Daphnia notable to every biologist. Remark first that all the water fleas that we have fished out of the pool are of one sex, such as are full-sized bear eggs in some stage of development. When mature, the eggs are lodged, two or three together, in a recess, the brood pouch, which lies between the carapace and the back of the body. Now and then, a fresh-hatched water flea may be seen imprisoned in this space, waiting till the mother moves aside some long spines which close the passage, and so allows it to escape. Before the eggs were passed into the brood pouch, they lay in the ovaries, long paired organs situated below and to either side of the alimentary canal. The duct by which the eggs escape into the brood pouch can rarely be seen except when a dark egg is passing through it. Since there are no males at this time of year, all these eggs are unfertilized, but they develop nonetheless, and the new generations succeed one another with great rapidity. At the approach of winter, our common water flea produces another kind of egg, distinguished by several peculiarities from the eggs mentioned above, being larger, much darker in color, lodged in a special protective case, fertilized by the male, and capable of lying dormant for weeks, months, or even years before they develop. These eggs have long been called winter eggs, while the smaller, paler, unfertilized eggs, which have no covering except their own shells, have been called summer eggs. These names, as we shall soon have occasion to remark, are not altogether appropriate, for winter eggs may be produced in the height of summer. 
The formation of the outer protective case of the winter eggs is very singular. It is fashioned from part of the back of the carapace of a living water flea. The specialized part becomes dense, dark-colored, and bordered by a wide strip, which on close examination is seen to be impregnated with air, a great number of air bubbles being lodged each in a separate cavity of the shell. When the time for liberation of the egg case has come, it splits outside the air-containing border and then doubles in two, catching up usually two, but sometimes more than two, eggs, which have previously been fertilized and passed out from the ovary. The egg purse, often called the epipipium, which means saddle, is now found not merely to be doubled in two, but to possess an inner and an outer wall separable from each other. The greater part of the carapace is really hollow at all times, its inner and outer walls being separated by a thin space in which, before a molt, the new carapace forms. Hence, when a bit of the two-walled carapace is, so to speak, punched out, it is found to consist of two separate layers, each doubled in two. The walls of the egg purse are springy, and the edges meet elastically without the help of muscles or any visible appliance locking up the eggs automatically. The purse never opens again until the young Daphneas developed within it force a passage for themselves. When the egg purse is set free, it floats away on the top of the water, and naturalists who skim the surface of a pond or lake with a toe net sometimes take them in great numbers. The winter eggs always produce females only, generally after a long interval, and these females are never capable of laying more winter eggs, but only unfertilized summer eggs. The male water flea is only found at the seasons when winter eggs are due. He is much smaller than the female, has no brood pouch, and differs in many small details. Weissman, who has closely studied the reproduction of many species of daphnids, finds that the succession of generations is not the same in all. Sometimes many generations of summer eggs succeed one another, until at last the cycle is completed by the recurrence of winter eggs. Sometimes every other generation is capable of producing fertilized winter eggs. In our commonest species, there are two seasons for sexual individuals, namely early summer and late autumn. There is a relation between the frequency with which fertilized winter eggs are produced and the conditions of life. Where drying up of the pools, which a particular species frequents, may be expected to happen many times in the year, the sexual stage recurs more frequently. In a species which is not liable to be dried up and where winter cold is the only hardship to be faced, the sexual stage may come round but once in the year. Indeed, it is found that in deep lakes, where neither drought nor winter cold can seriously affect the Daphneas, they propagate all round the year by unfertilized or summer eggs, and winter eggs are perhaps never formed at all. Where there is a well-marked dry season in every year, the winter eggs may lie dormant for months or even for years without losing their power of hatching. Dried mud, collected from pools in Jerusalem or Khartoum, regularly produces large and handsome daphneas, besides other crustaceans, whenever a spoonful is dropped into a tank in an English parlor. A little dry mud from the pool of Gihon, which contains water only for two months of the year, was placed in a globe of water, and the crustaceans duly appeared. When they had enjoyed a few weeks of active life and laid their eggs, the water was drawn off and the mud left to dry. Next spring, the same mud was again placed in water, and the process was regularly repeated for many years. A sample of the mud, which had been kept dry for ten years, still contained live eggs. The small size of the eggs of a Daphnia and their power of withstanding long-continued drought helped to explain their wide dispersal. 
The wind that scatters clouds of summer dust often scatters crustacean eggs as well and makes it easier to understand how pools of insignificant size, separated from all others by miles of desert, sea, or snow, should now and then be found to swarm with live Daphneas. The biological questions which the history of Daphnia suggests are of the deepest interest, but many of them are at present insoluble, and nearly all of them are difficult, too difficult for the young observer, at least. Keep the facts in mind, and you will come across other instances of the same thing as your experience widens. Certain insects, polyzoa, rotifers, and other animals show in their life histories an alternation of sexual and asexual generations, very similar to the alternation of summer and winter eggs in Daphnia. In all, there is a rapid multiplication during the season when food abounds. Resting stages, mating, and all that takes up time are then left out. When the season of difficulty comes round, the season of drought or the season of cold, loss of time signifies nothing, and safety is all in all. No one, I believe, can explain why only the fertilized egg can outlast the season of cold or drought, nor can we make it clear to our own minds what lasting benefit to the species can result from the exuberance of new individuals in one particular season, if that season is immediately followed by another in which the numbers are cut down to a minimum again. The advantage may be merely this, that if only 1% of the individuals produced under favorable circumstances can be expected to survive, still 1% of a million will be a thousand times as great as 1% of a thousand, but we are mere beginners, learning to spell, and what we think about the more difficult questions of life signifies little until we are in possession of wider and deeper knowledge. Let us concentrate our attention upon the problems which are soluble in our own day, not dismissing altogether from our thoughts such as are at present insoluble, but waiting for the lucky moment when the clue shall offer itself. Some day we may be able to explain why an egg which has to remain long dormant must be fertilized, while an egg which is to develop at once may dispense with fertilization. End of Part 2 of Chapter 31